Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 111th show. Today's guest is Radhika Dutt, author of Radical Product Thinking, which is a fabulous book, one you can't put down, and so much great information in it. So Radhika, let's start with this. Tell us about your professional background. So my background has been that I've also been an entrepreneur. The first startup, in fact, that we started was out of our dorm rooms at MIT. Um, And my background has been that, you know, I've learned how to build products through a lot of hard lessons. So I mentioned that first startup, you know, we made mistakes. That was the first time I caught the product disease I call hero syndrome, where, you know, we were just trying to go big scale and the idea was go big or go home, right? And we ended up building a product that was too early to market. We built what was, what you would now call the early version of Siri back in 2000. (laughs) And uh, that was hero syndrome that we caught. But what I realized was that, you know, Over time, I had caught product diseases and then learned how to avoid them. I'd built the sort of intuition for how do you build products successfully. And every time I worked at a different company, I was watching other people make the same mistakes uh, that I had made already and learned from. And so, you know, the burning question in me back in 2017 um, was, is it that there are just a few people who can build products successfully, you know, these people like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, or is it that every one of us could actually learn how to build products successfully? Um, And what is, is there a methodology that we can come up with that takes some of this intuition that we've learned and translates that systematically into action? So that was the burning question. And so radical product thinking came up as a framework out of that. Um, And then today, you know, it just grew organically and became a movement where people around the world started using this. We put it up as a free toolkit on the website and it still is a free toolkit as well. Um, And so, so many people reached out saying, you know, do you have a voiceover on top of this toolkit? And that's how the book was born. So, you know, I was wondering about why you wrote this particular book and it's not just for entrepreneurs, it's really for government, schools, it doesn't matter what that is, you're encouraging uh, a whole different way of people looking at problems and how to solve them, correct? Exactly. And it comes from my background where, you know, I have never held two consecutive jobs where it was in the same industry. So I've worked in industries all the way from, you know, media and entertainment, broadcast, uh, advertising, telecom, um, robotics, even wine, right? And across all of these different sectors, I found the same set of product disease. And no matter whether it was a startup or a multinational organization. And so that's sort of the background led me to realize that building products, it's not about, you know, just 
a set of tactics that you do, what's the set of first principles? What's a philosophy that we can apply across these industries? And that's where radical product thinking comes in, where, you know, it is this philosophy that you can apply no matter what sector, industry, um, or, or type of organization you are. It's your mechanism for creating change. And we'll talk a little bit about the philosophy itself, but that's how it came about after applying it to all of these sectors. Uh, and I, I loved all the case studies that you gave in there. Um, they were terrific. Could, could you tell us about the three pillars of radical product thinking? Yeah, so the first idea, right, behind radical product thinking is that your product is your mechanism for creating change in the world. So it's your constantly improving mechanism. So what that means is, you know, your product is not the end goal in itself. Um, whatever that changes, how you're bringing about that changes your product. So when you start thinking about product in this way, it totally redefines product, right? Because you might be creating change through, uh, maybe it's a services company. It might be through your job as a software engineer. Uh, you might be creating change through uh, your high-tech product, but it might be through freelancing or through your government policy that you're working on, right? But this means like whatever it is that you're working on, all the way from a government policy down to um, you know, your high-tech product, that's your mechanism for creating change and that is therefore your product. Anything can be your product. So that's the first thing. The second pillar is that you have to envision the change that you wanna bring up, uh, that you wanna create in the world, before you start to work on the product. Because if your product is this mechanism for creating change, you have to know what change you need to, you want to bring about, and only then can you build the product. And the third pillar is that you can engineer that change very systematically. It's not about, let's just try things and see what sticks. That's not how you build products. You know, you have to envision change and then you systematically engineer that change. And that's the, the pillar of building a product. Um, so those three together are kind of the core ideas behind the philosophy uh, of radical product thinking. So what's your definition of vision when it comes to business and should every company have a written stated vision and you list characteristics of a good vision? Can you, can you explain that? Yeah. So every company, you know, typically every company has a vision statement and the vision statement sounds something like this, you know, it's like to be um, the next leader in blah, blah. Um, yeah, or there's this vision statement. And actually this is a public company. This vision statement goes um, creating, no, empowering human progress by helping people uh, express themselves. You know, that's a fluffy statement. Anything goes under that vision. My kids have a piano teacher and <laughs> Her vision, and she's empowering my kids to express themselves, right? This could be her vision statement, but it, this could also be the vision statement of a fashion brand that's empowering people to express themselves through fashion. Like, when we have a fluffy bullshit vision like this, mm -hmm. like anything goes. And so my idea behind a vision statement, a radical approach is a vision statement actually has to be detailed. Um, it has to answer five questions. It's the who, what, why, when, and how. So that's whose world are we changing? Um, what exactly is their problem? Meaning what does their world look like and uh, what are they doing today, right? Like what, what's the problem behind it? And the third thing is, 
why is the status quo unacceptable? Like, why must we solve that problem? And if we cannot answer this question, we have no business building a product. Then we can say, what does the world look like uh, when we can say mission accomplished? And then finally, how will we bring this about using our product or our technology, our approach, whatever it is? And so we have to answer these five questions in our vision statement. And so this means that in the radical vision statement, it's a fill in the blank statement where I don't care about the words that you use. I really don't want uh, you know, wordsmithing and, and spending a day long exercise in finding the perfect words. What the reason it's a fill in the blank statement is because I want teams to focus on, you know, what is what are the answers to these five questions so that you have this sort of clarity. So what I don't care about so much is whether a vision statement is written or not, but if you can answer these five questions and everyone in the company, you know, they're not memorizing it, but if you ask anyone in the company and they tell you the answers to these questions in their own words, but it's the same, then you know you have a good vision. I mean, how often do employees just walk right by the vision statement that's right on the board in front of the uh, receptionist desk and just kind of chuckle about it because they feel it's so unsubstantive that it was turned over to uh, the communications department to make up something that nobody even believes in or driven by on a daily basis. Exactly. And you know, your vision is only useful if you're actually using it in everyday decision making. So when you have a fluffy vision statement, like, you know, helping humanity make progress by empowering people to express themselves, it doesn't act like a filter, right? Like you cannot use that vision when you're, you have, let's say, a feature in mind and you hold it up against this vision, it doesn't act like a filter. Anything goes. And so this is why employees look at such a vision and chuckle because it's meaningless. How do I use this when I actually want to make a decision? You can't. Whereas when you have this vision statement that's so detailed, now you can start to use it for your decision making because it acts like a filter. And sometimes the answer has to be, no, you should not do this. Well, we're going to talk about that too. Um, one of the people in the audience says, could you please repeat the five questions, but we're going to send you the video and you'll be able to get those five questions. And the next question from the audience is, are there any processes or methodologies on how a team or one validates a problem is truly a problem? Good question, because that's one of our questions here. I love that question. And, you know, we're going to talk more about that in terms of a strategy. So is this a good time to get into that, Mark? Yeah, go ahead, please. Okay. So, you know, when you have a vision statement, I want you to think about that as a stake in the ground. You know, if you are an early stage startup, you might not know the that these are the right answers to those questions, right? And so write this vision statement down. And sometimes you need to go actually validate whether you are correct on this. Um, and when you go do this validation, you might have to go rewrite this vision. And in fact, you'll look at the answers to the who, what, why, when, and how, and you'll go back and say, oh, here's where we were wrong. And then you'll make corrections. But you know, in terms of validating whether a problem is truly a problem, you also need to have this clarity of what is a good strategy. So you have a vision, but then you need a strategy in terms of making that vision actionable. So that's where the radical approach to a strategy is um, these four questions, right? And the mnemonic is radical or RDCL. So the R stands for real pain points. 
And it's real only if it's validated, right? This is where you go and say, okay, do people actually have this problem? Meaning one, you have to go observe this. You have to observe if someone actually has a problem or if you know you think that that's the case. The second observation you need is, is someone willing to give up something or invest something in exchange for having this problem solved? If they're not willing to invest in it, it's not a big enough problem, right? I'll give you an example. Even if, um, so whether it's investing money or time, uh, whatever it is, they have to be willing to do something to have that problem solved. So that's when you know a pain point is real. And so you list all your pain points. Next, you say, okay, how are we gonna solve the, those pain points? That's where the D comes in. The D is for design. What's your solution to those pain points? Then comes C, which is capabilities. So capabilities is what's the underlying engine um, behind that uh, solution? So, you know, maybe there's technology you need. Maybe it's a partnership. Think about the tech and non-tech um, engine that solves, that helps you deliver on that design, right? And then the last thing is L for logistics. That's where you think about What's my pricing model? How do I bring this to market? How do I support my product? How will I train my users? Um, how will I support them, et cetera? But all of those things, right? We often forget about them. We say, oh, let me just build a product and I'll figure out how to monetize it later. And that does not work. Like you need the RDCL all to be aligned for this product strategy to come together. And so Brandon, a little longer answer to your question, but basically, to, you have to validate your problems through this approach, and then you write a strategy that is aligned, and that's what you will test out. You'll be testing out every element of your strategy and your vision, and that's a more hypothesis-driven approach where these are all stakes in the ground, and you go validate them. You know, I, I found that really um, spoke to me because I have a venture that I thought I was solving a problem, interviewed the people, it sounded like it, but it wasn't a enough pain for them that they're willing to use this much more efficient product that would reduce the time for them to do uh, their work from eight weeks to one day. Even though you could do it, when you would talk to the leaders, they're going, yeah, I know that'd be great, but you know, we're, we're kind of happy with the status quo. And unless their competitors start to use it, it just kind of sits there. And so I learned that uh, the hard way. And a lot of people do create things thinking, oh, that's a real problem. I remember there was a guy who created uh, a DVR for radio. And you know how many people feel like, hey, they missed something on the radio and want to listen to it later? Probably pretty rare, and especially now that you can go and listen to most shows online. So uh, that really spoke to me. Does having a written vision mean you're vision-driven? Uh, which you give the Boeing example as not being uh, vision, uh, being vision driven. Can you explain that? Yeah, you know, having a vision statement, unless you're actually using that, your vision, you're not being vision driven, right? So when I think about vision driven companies, what I mean by that is I described um, that you need a vision, you need a strategy. The next step is you actually need to bring your vision and strategy into your everyday decisions. So that's the prioritization you need to do. Then comes execution and measurement. So how do you measure success in a way that's derived from your vision and strategy? And then lastly, you know, is your culture so that you're able to 
um, have the right culture in your team to innovate in this way. So those are the five elements, right? Vision, strategy, priorities, execution and measurement and culture. When you're vision driven, you have to think about it like a, a chain that goes all the way from vision to your everyday activities. When you're not vision driven, there's a break somewhere in the chain, right? And whenever there's a break in the chain, that's when those product diseases that I was talking about, that's where they come about. And that's what I mean by, you know, it's very hard to be to stay vision driven because it's very easy to make that chain break in the chain. And the example that you talked about, right, in terms of Boeing. So Boeing was not vision driven because they had a vision statement, but Let's think about how they built their product. Uh, and the example I, I was giving in the book is the Boeing 737 MAX that came about, right? So Boeing invented the Boeing 737, um, the, the Boeing 737, uh, you know. The Dreamliner? While... Sorry? Was it the Dreamliner? No, that was the their narrow body uh, engine, right? Sorry, their narrow body plane. So that actually came about like four decades ago. And what happened was with every, um, with, with as time passed, right, they just kept iterating on the same narrow body, body platform and they just made little tweaks to it over time. They needed to rebuild this or, or like come up with a new plane from scratch. And in fact, they were thinking about it, but they kept kicking this can down the road saying, oh, we'll do this later, right? And they kept maximizing just revenues, thinking about the short term. Let's just build one more iteration of this thing. So what happened? Um, Airbus came along and they built a, a, a new plane, the uh, NEO, the 320 NEO. Yeah. And that was 20% more fuel efficient. So now Boeing's customers that were their hardcore customers, they only had Boeing fleets, uh, like American Airlines, they decided they were going to use both Boeing and Airbus. This was Boeing's big wake-up call. They're like, oh my God, you know, our customers are moving to Airbus. We've got to do something. So instead of building the plane from scratch that they were going to build, they said, you know what, we'll come up with this max. And so they took the same platform and they just added a bigger engine uh, under the wings. But to be able to fit in those bigger engines, right, um, the, the body had a very low frame. So they actually had to move the engines and that changed the whole aerodynamics of the plane. And so what was happening in the plane was that as they were flying, when you reach cruising altitude, it tended to like, um, it, it tended to stall by, uh, because it would tip its nose upwards because of the aerodynamics. And so they created the MCAS system to like push the nose downwards. And that's what caused the two crashes that we know about, because this MCAS was a fix to the fix to the fix, right? And so if we think about what they were doing, instead of being vision-driven and thinking about what's the change we want to bring, you know, maybe it's this new fuel-efficient and um, better airplane that we want to bring to the market, they just said, let's maximize revenues and came up with this next iteration. And by being iteration led, that's what led to the crashes and so many fatalities. And, and that's short-term thinking because, and that's why entrepreneurs like Elon Musk exist because these boards uh, and the companies themselves take a look and say, you know, we've got so much money invested in these plants and this you know, and in the machinery and everything that's building this thing. 
do we really want to go and make that investment? But uh, they find out just like Kodak did, you're not going to be around for long. Uh, yeah, you'll make money in the short term, but somebody's going to leapfrog you and cannibalize your business and you should have done it yourself, right? Exactly. And, but, you know, there's another element to this. First of all, you're exactly right that it causes short-term thinking. Um, and by the way, businesses have been increasingly more short-term since the 1980s. And when you see uh, that short-term thinking, the reality is that stock performance in the longer term actually is worse, right? So this is this is one of the research studies that we've found. Um, but the other thing that happens is this mentality that we've developed that we just disrupt for the sake of disrupting things, it's actually been really detrimental for society. One of the fundamental realizations that we need is not all that can be disrupted should be disrupted. We need a clear vision behind what's the change? Why do we need to disrupt something? And you know, the example that I want to give is the disruption of public media, right? If we think about how our society works right now, the amount of polarization that we have in society, a lot of it stems from how we've disrupted public media. There's been research studies that have shown that over the last four decades, countries in which there has been less polarization or where polarization has decreased over time are the countries that have invested in public media. Whereas in the US, right, the rise of cable media, this was one of those disruptions that happened as cable media became advertising driven, the whole business model was disrupted. So instead, so because it was advertising driven, what happened was all these companies had to think about ratings. And so they needed to think about, you know, how do we attract our users? Even the news became very left-wing, right-wing. It was all about creating scandalous stories that really attracted and kept eyeballs. And so that has increased polarization, you know, long before even social media came along. And social media obviously has exacerbated that. But this was an example of, you know, capitalism coming in and saying, you know, we can disrupt for the sake of disruption without thinking about what's the change that's actually going to bring come about as a result of this. Um, and this is this is a perfect example of why we need to think about what's the change we want to bring to the world to society and then think about what does that mean in terms of what's the product or disruption that is needed and, and you see that like you say in the media all the time because it's more like business driven about how we're going to get the most number of listeners users uh to this uh our programs and they have to become more and more outrageous in order to keep those people entertained, even if it's destructive. So that's really unfortunate. Uh, why do so few people, as you write, are good at delivering visionary products? You know, I think part of it is just what we think a visionary means. I mean, if I think about, I, I often do this exercise whenever I give talks. I ask people to throw out the first name of a visionary that comes to their mind, right? And, you know, invariably, the names I hear, they'll throw out names like uh, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, and uh, Tesla, and so on, right? And what I notice is two things. One is we think about visionaries as just these rare individuals uh, who 
you know, came up with something and it was their bright idea and everyone else just followed along to what they wanted. And that's our idea of a visionary, right? Which is very skewed. And honestly, this is survivor bias. If we think about visionaries in this way, those are the few people who became well-known and we think this is how we must innovate. And this is what visionary products requires. And which is why, you know, in my book, I give very different examples of what it means to be a visionary. It's not all, you know, these few uh, just male whites, let's say, you know, Uh it's people from all over the world who are creating visionary products and not in ways where it's just one person who is driving the rest of the team. It's, you know, people who are all working together in teams who you know, had a team and a shared sense of what they wanted to accomplish. And, and that sort of an approach leads to, you know, honestly, very often even better products. And I, we can talk about some of these examples. And one of my favorite is Lidget. um, And I'll talk about that in a moment. But I think the fundamental problem to answer the question that you had was, we need to rethink what it means to build visionary products. And what is a visionary And that leads us to a better approach to building these visionary products. Yeah, I I think the same thing that you're right, that you've been talking about here and everybody uses uh, the same names, but it comes across all kinds of groups. I saw a study at Harvard saying that the more diverse your team is, and it's statistically true, the higher returns you get on your capital, the more successful the company, the more products developed. If everybody looks the same, it doesn't turn out. And what, has your research bared out that same? Exactly. Result? It has. And, you know, it's it's not just about having that diverse team. I absolutely agree with you. That, that sort of diverse team does lead to better results, but it's because there is a higher um, group IQ. You know, that's the main thing. When you have a higher group IQ, as opposed to one individual who is driving a particular vision and an innovation, that higher group IQ is actually what leads to better innovation. Um, and, And that's what, you know, instead of taking this approach of a single visionary building something, when you realize that that's not what visionary products come from when it's this group approach of a shared vision and systematically building something innovative, you know, that's sort of a different and new mindset is what leads to better innovation. So uh, let's talk about something you were mentioning about with Boeing, which is what is meant by iteration led? Yeah, iteration led is kind of what we've you know learned out of the Silicon Valley mentality of how to build products, you know what we've learned is uh, the way to build products is to just try different things, see what works. We keep hearing this mantra: fail fast, learn fast, move fast, break things. It's all about just iterate, just keep trying things and see what works. Uh, Brandon here says MVPs and feedback. That's exactly it. You know, we think that's how innovation happens, right? But let's think about where does that philosophy and mentality come from? It comes from the VC business model. The way venture capital works is they invest in 10 companies and Out of that, they only need one company to be successful. And in fact, they need the others to fail quickly because this way you're not pushing, you're not pouring money into, uh, you know, companies that are just going to be middling around. You just want those to fail quickly. And one of them, you want to hit it big. And so we've really kind of 
taken this VC business model and seen a few survivor bias examples like Twitter and Facebook. And we've said, okay, that's what we need to do to build successful products. Just keep trying different things, see what works. And you know, that's, that's how we'll do innovation. Um, and that's what I mean by being iteration led. This approach where we think, keep iterating, keep pivoting until you find this nirvana of uh, product market fit. And instead of that, we need to take this vision driven approach of, What's the vision? What's your strategy? Think of those as hypotheses and you then iterate based on this vision and uh, strategy. So meaning that your iterations are driven by vision and strategy as opposed to your entire innovation is driven just by iteration without the vision and strategy. You uh, write that since the 1980s and you were just talking about this, the trend has been to focus on the short term. What kind of effect, positive and or negative, does that have? And you provide an example of Jack Welch's tenure at GE and where GE today and where GE is today because of those decisions. Yeah, you know, this uh, example of companies constantly wanting to or needing to be short-term driven, um, what it ends up leading to, the, let me talk about the positive part first. The positive is the fact that, you know, we have developed methodologies like lean and agile, and it helps us iterate faster. But what I like to say is, you know, I think about that as giving us speed, right? Lean and agile give us speed, but speed can look like this, where everyone is moving in different directions, right? It's like arrows pointing everywhere. And that looks like chaos, right? Speed alone gives us chaos. What we really need is not just speed. We need velocity. We need speed plus direction. And that's how you get velocity. And so if we think about the GE example, you know, what they had was speed and they were, they didn't have that clarity of direction. Their only direction was to be number one or number two in every market, right? And so, and for a long time, we thought that was a brilliant vision led by Jack Welch. Um, so what did that lead to? GE at the beginning used to be a manufacturing company, and we know it for making light bulbs. Well, over time, um, they kept trying to get into lots of different markets to be able to keep growing and show these short-term results. So GE started to become, uh, to start doing a lot of uh, financing. Uh, there was GE Capital that kept growing bigger and bigger. GE Capital at some point used to be like 20% of all of GE. At some point, they were more than 40% of GE. And during the mortgage-backed um, mortgage crisis, right, the yeah. housing crisis, what ended up happening was GE invested in um, a company that was one of the main players that led to that subprime, subprime crisis. And GE right. has still been paying for it. Um, and it's led to billions in losses. So GE went from, you know, this manufacturing company and you know, they eventually got reclassified as a finance company because they lost their way trying to be short term and always just kind of pursuing the money. Uh, and that's one of the, the results of being iteration led that we see, right, which is you become so short term driven that you lose your way. And so to bring it all back to kind of what is it that we need to be doing? Um, growth is great, but it has to be driven by a vision and strategy. 
Um, and so instead of just being short-term driven, we have to balance the short-term and the long-term. I'm not saying that revenue is not important or that we need to be altruistic, but finding that balance is one of the elements of radical product thinking, that third element that I called prioritization. Funny, uh, GE has so lost its way that nobody really knows what it is anymore, and neither the, neither do they. And they've kind of fallen off the cliff because people used to always want to hire GE uh, CEOs of divisions as their CEO. They wanted to emulate GE, and now they're like a has been comp- company that's trying to find its former glory, and they haven't been able to do that yet. We have a a question from the audience. Any processes or validation methodologies for finding PMF? Right. So product market fit or PMF, uh, as you're saying, Ren, um, in terms of how do you find that, you know, um, you sometimes need to, okay, first of all, uh, instead of trying to build something and then validate it, which is what we often do, you have to uh, validate it through the smallest possible approaches, right? So you have an idea, you first craft a vision and strategy, then you can validate it through design prototypes, for example. Um, So try out these design prototypes and you get people to use it and see whether that works. Um, Actually, let me rewind a little bit. The first step is you just do observations to be able to validate it, right? Then you try these design prototypes uh, and that's the next step in validating uh, and finding product market fit. Then when you find what is working out of these design prototypes, then you actually build those things and then try to find whether uh, it's working in terms of this product market fit. But I think the most important thing I'll say is, and this is the part that you know, you might have heard about all these steps of how you validate, but the most important thing to me is when you have a vision and a strategy that I described like this, what is important to act is to actually write out all of this and think about your strategy as, you know, doing algebra together as a team. What I mean by that is, right, think about your math teacher from school. She always told you, you must show your work in algebra, (laughs) that don't just give me the answer at the end. Right. When you're finding product market fit, what often happens is people just feel like they've either found it or not found it. Right. It's very binary. The reality is you actually need to be able to retrace your steps and say, okay, if I'm not finding product market fit, where did I go wrong? And that's where if you have this radical strategy or RDCL, right, and you've written out all of these elements of your um, strategy, then you go back to your strategy and you say, okay, did I go wrong in terms of this R and the real pain points? Let me let me understand if I made a mistake there. Well, is it the solution or the design that's wrong? Or is it my capabilities? Or is it my pricing model, et cetera? And so in terms of finding product market fit, you should be able to retrace your steps, know what went wrong, and then know, okay, based on that, what am I going to try next? And that's the most important tip that I can share that I haven't read elsewhere. The discipline that's required to do that, and you obviously have that discipline as an MIT engineer, is really critical, right? I mean, that's that's a problem for a lot of the companies that they want to skip steps and not have the discipline and follow a methodology. You're so right. And that discipline is often lacking because I cannot tell you how often I hear in a company, we don't have time for strategy. Right. You know, if you don't have time for strategy, you really should not be building anything because you're you're really wasting time in building anything if you haven't been able to think about what what is your hypothesis for what you're building in the first place. 
Um, how do you get employees to buy into a leader's vision? Because I've often heard friends of mine who work at companies and say, you know what, I, I don't buy into what the CEO is saying. And then they kind of drag their feet themselves and then it's not executed on. So what do you really need to do? Especially most of the people who are listening are in entrepreneurial organizations or building startups. What, what's your recommendation? So there are two elements to this, right? So the first is getting people to buy into the vision by realizing that this vision has to be owned in a shared way. You know, forget this model that just one person owns the vision and everyone else is following that vision. And so what I do with teams is I do a shared visioning exercise. So I mentioned that, you know, radical product thinking is this, uh, for the, the vision statement in radical product thinking is a fill in the blank statement, right? Where you answer those five questions. I do this as a shared team exercise where we together answer those questions, where I ask every person in the team to share their answers to that vision statement. And then we'll all talk about it, understand where we're aligned and misaligned. And that helps make it a shared vision as opposed to me trying to just push my vision. So that's the first thing, which is that, you know, instead of getting teams to memorize my vision statement, we're going to create a shared vision statement that everyone feels. The second thing, right, is you have to get every person to experience this vision in terms of the problem statement and the solution. What I mean by that, right, is very often people don't get to experience the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, when I was working at a company, Avid, you know, we were trying to, we were building um, hardware and software that newsrooms were going to use to uh, to, to produce news and put it on air, right? And what I realized was until I was actually in the newsroom and observing what was happening, I hadn't really observed or I hadn't really internalized what was the problem we were trying to solve. Like intellectually, I got it, but it was only when I observed it that I really felt it, right? And so one of the things leaders can do is to give people that frontline experience in terms of experiencing that problem. So everyone internalizes what's the problem we're setting out to solve and why it's unacceptable in the world if we don't solve it. Why is Tesla so good at radical product thinking and what can leaders of product companies learn from them? You know, I want to give a nuanced answer to why is Tesla good at radical product thinking. I think they're good at building the product in a very vision-driven way. What they're bad at is, I'll say, creating digital pollution, which I talk about in the latter part of the book. Um, so what they're good at is having this clarity of vision where it's the vision for their product wasn't just um, about, you know, building a car that beats competition. It wasn't this vision of like just the next iteration of the old car that we had. It was really about, you know, not requiring a compromise from the driver to go green. And that was the vision behind, uh, you know, this, this uh, model three, for example. And then every aspect of the car was engineered from scratch to really make that vision come alive. Um, you know, there's this um, there's this auto expert, Sandy Monroe, who took apart the Model 3 and he compared that to the Chevy Bolt. And he was saying, you know, it's incredible that uh, 
Tesla is the only uh, manufacturer that uses the Hall effect uh, in the engine, which basically creates 40% uh, better performance. And, you know, he was amazed because it required production that he didn't even know as an auto expert how they were doing that, right? But they had managed to create this driven by this vision. It wasn't just an iteration of previous things. They use iteration, however, um, and those iterations are driven by a clear vision. So if we think about their battery, the first battery that they used was kind of off the shelf, whatever was used for laptop batteries, they just packed those together. But that was a starting point. And so they used iterations. And today, if you look at their batteries, they actually make them themselves together with Panasonic, I believe. And now, you know, that battery is a very Tesla thing. So they use iterations and keep improving on things, but it's all driven by a vision. And that's why I think they're such a vision-driven company in terms of their product. Uh, I used to teach at the National University of Singapore, and you also uh, taught there as well. And that country is amazingly successful in just about every measurement of success. Could you briefly tell the story of the country and the leader's vision and what we should take away from their success? Yeah, so I lived in Singapore for two and a half years, right? And I was absolutely fascinated by just how vision-driven the, the whole country is. Um, and the example I wanna give, right, is when I landed in Singapore, the next day I had to go pick up our work permit, right? And for anyone who has ever had an H-1B visa in the US, you know that if you had to go to the immigration office, it's not a pleasure, right? Um, like in, in no country have I felt that it's a pleasure to go into an immigration office. And I've lived in many countries. Whereas in Singapore, right, I showed up at the office, at the immigration uh, office, and I was really afraid that this was going to be a nightmare. My kids had been up since two in the morning, right? It was going to be a miserable experience. But instead, it was just amazing. Like, we were waiting after checking in, and somebody actually comes to us and asks us if we're being helped. And I'm looking around thinking, you know, you're asking me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, you know, there were all these signs around the office that says, you know, uh, we will, uh, we want to ensure great customer experience. And I'm thinking customer, really? You're thinking of me as a customer? Um, and so what was amazing was every aspect of the experience was true to a design philosophy. They had even applied design thinking to this. And they had a vision statement in this immigration office that talked about their vision for why they're doing this. They want to be, they want to make Singapore a place where businesses really thrive, where business has access to talent. And for that, they needed to bring in external talent that can also grow internal talent, et cetera, because it's a really small country. Like it's the size of the greater Boston area, both in terms of population and the actual physical size. And so this vision was driving the entire experience and the execution of what they had created. And so that led me to some research, you know, how does a country become so vision driven in their immigration office? Um, and so I looked up Singapore's history, right? And their entire history is this leadership that is vision driven. So the way Singapore was born is that in 1965, they became an independent country after a failed merger with Malaysia. Um, and what happened was, you know, even like being a small country, like nobody even thought that Singapore would survive as an independent country. They had no natural resources. Uh, they only had a port. They didn't even have access to drinking water. 70% of their drinking water at the time came from Malaysia. 
uh, you know, poverty, unemployment, it was just really rampant. And that's where the vision of the first prime minister, Lee Kuan Yew, really transformed the country. So his vision was to create a better life for Singaporeans. And he thought about Singapore like a product. He actually talked about Singapore like a product. He talked about producing a first world oasis in a third world region. That's how he described it. So what that meant was they needed to have, um, they needed to think about this like a product where businesses from the West could come to Singapore and use that as a platform to explore the Asian region. And so their strategy was to translate this vision into a set of actionable steps. So they thought about what do businesses need in this oasis, right? And so what they realized was it needed to be easy to communicate. So English became the business language. Um, it needed to be corruption free so that businesses would thrive in Singapore as opposed to anywhere else in Asia. So this, these were the pain points they thought about. And so they thought about the solutions, the design, right, and the strategy. And so to make English the, the business language, you know, they needed to not just pick English and, you know, forget the other languages. That would have caused a civil war because you had all these different ethnicities. You had Tamils, Malays, Chinese. You couldn't just say, oh, English and forget the rest. So they actually created a language uh, mother tongue program where all these mother tongues were recognized in schools and taught in schools, but English was just the business language. Uh, and so even the prime minister, when he gives his uh, national rally addresses, he speaks in multiple languages, actually. So my point is, you know, every element of their vision was translated systematically into strategy. And then it, it showed up in how they were prioritizing things. So this vision-driven approach to solving problems is what came all the way from Singapore's history in 65 um, to how they do everything today, uh, including their immigration office. And they're very transparent. I mean, it blows you away when you're there. And every month, they, all the cabinet ministers report and take uh, questions on the radio or on TV, and they respond to all of them. When they don't know something, I was shocked. We'll have to get back to you on that, and we'll get back to you. And it's really run like a very entrepreneurial company. Very impressive what they've been able to do, something we should all kind of look at. You mentioned different diseases that could end up self-inflicted. One was FOMO-related, and we have had the creator of FOMO, Patrick McGinnis, um, talking about his book just last week who wrote the book, Fear of Missing Out. The one that interests me uh, the most was the post on the hero syndrome, which you were talking about earlier. Why is that a mistake? Yeah, you know, hero syndrome, and I mentioned that we had caught that when I built my first startup, which was Lobby 7. Uh, hero syndrome was where, you know, we were so focused on scaling, being big, right? When we want to just go big, um, we often forget what's the problem that we're setting out to solve in the first place. And that happens so often in companies, right? We start to think about measures of success, like, you know, how much funding am I raising? And, um, you know, how big is my solution? Even our vision statement, it starts to look like, you know, trying to solve everyone's problem. And so we become really unfocused. Um, and so instead, right, that level of focus where we know whose problem we're trying to solve, it's not everyone's, it doesn't have to be the whole world that you're trying to change. 
It can be just your small corner of the world and a very specific group of users who have this problem. So being intellectually honest about whose problem you're solving um, and not just trying to go after scale, but having clarity of what problem you're solving and what's the solution, that helps you avoid this hero syndrome. Um, please talk about how Yahoo had what you call a case of uh, strategic swelling. And do you think that contributed to their, you know, kind of being pushed to the side? I mean, nobody really talks about Yahoo. I think it still exists. Exactly. You know, Yahoo has a very serious case of acute um, strategic swelling, right? Because there was a time when I looked at their website and there was actually an alphabetical listing of all of their offerings. If you looked at their website, uh, this was back in the uh, in the late 90s, their website had all this flashing stuff and there was so much stuff that they were doing, right? And compare that to the simplicity of what Google was doing. It had just one field and you could search. That was it, right? And so it, Google had this clarity of what they were solving, whereas Yahoo was trying to do everything for everyone. And that's what I mean by strategic um, swelling. Um, yeah. And that's what we can avoid by having, having clarity. Uh, this was a great chapter, by the way. I really enjoyed this chapter. Um, please talk about obsessive sales disorder and how not to become a victim of it. That's one of my favorite diseases because I've actually contributed to this one, right? And by the way, that chapter on product diseases is also my favorite because you know, anytime you're trying to introduce a new idea like radical product thinking, you have to start with what problem are we trying to solve? And looking at product diseases, uh, it, it makes it really easy to say, yes, we need radical product thinking because almost every company I've ever come across has one of these seven types of product diseases. But obsessive sales disorder is one where, you know, your salesperson comes to you looking all excited and they go, you know, if we just add this one custom feature, oh. we can win this mega deal. <laughs> And it sounds mostly innocent. So you say, yes, let's do this, right? Um, and we've all been there, except that you keep doing this a few times and your entire roadmap is driven by all these different contracts you have to make good on. And that's obsessive sales disorder. You mentioned Josh Linkner's book, The Road of uh, Reinvention. Josh was also on our show. Um, why the status quo might not uh, need to be changed, which flies in the face of why entrepreneurs mostly exist and whose goal is to upend the status quo. Can you explain what you mean here? And you had a good example regarding Segway. Right, it goes back to this question of, you know, why is the status quo unacceptable? Like we shouldn't just be disrupting for the sake of disrupting, unless we have a clear answer to what is that status quo that needs disruption? So Segway is the perfect example because, you know, the, the reason that, product was created was because the inventor, you know, was thinking about his commute and thinking, you know, this idea that you have to walk to work, like, what if you could just have a segue, right? And the reality is nobody else really had that problem in America. Like most people don't walk to work. <laughs> Um, and so, and, and they don't live within walking distance or such short commuting distances to work. Uh, and so the Segway ended up being this product that nobody really needed. So the one thing that I'll say is, you know, when you want to think about, is the status quo unacceptable? When you write your vision statement, you know, I mentioned the who, what, why, when, how questions. The why question 
the trick is when you say, here's why the status quo is unacceptable. Like maybe you might say, and I have actually have made the same mistake you mentioned, Mark, which is that we might say that the status quo is unacceptable because this product or their current way of doing something takes up too much time. You then ask yourself the question, well, so what? So what if it takes up a lot of time? If there isn't a very clear answer to that, so what? You're not, the status quo may not be unacceptable. That's what it comes down to. So keep asking so what in your vision statement about that, why is the world unacceptable? And then you'll be able to get to the answer of why your product is absolutely needed. One of the interesting um, things that I read in your book was, and could you please explain the example of the Indian company? Is it called Legit? Legit. Legit? Legit, exactly. Uh, and how they so managed to make 45,000 people equal partners all gain the same amount of the profits. I I'm just wondering, didn't anybody complain that one person was creating more value than another? And Legit has a fascinating story. So for everyone who is not heard of the organization Legit, you've probably eaten Legit products. So if you've gone to an Indian restaurant and had lentil crackers, you know, papadams that they say, papadams are uh, like Legit has 60% market share of papadams. Uh, and what most people don't know, even in India, is that it's owned by 45,000 women who are all equal partners in this organization. And they roll these papadams at home. So this um, idea of Legit came up because these women, uh, there were, it started with seven women who were all, uh, you know, wanting to earn a dignified living. They didn't want to be dependent on their husbands for a living. They wanted to contribute to their, in, their household income, right? And so they started this organization and they said, we're going to build, we're going to make papadams, roll papadams together. Uh, and then whatever we sell to stores, we'll share in the profits equally so that we never take charity. And so at the end of a week, they grew to like 25 women. By the end of a whole year, there were 300 women who were splitting these profits equally. And, um, and so now there are 45,000 women who all split these profits equally, right? And so what they earn is their daily wages. So each woman earns based on how much she's rolling. But the profits, they split equally as long as you've rolled more than five kilograms of papadums uh, a day, you sp uh, split profits equally. So then the question is, you know, well, think about all these law firms. Can you imagine that they would split profits <laughs> no equally if like regardless of seniority and how long you've been there, right? And yet um, one of the fundamental things that Legit does is they got all these women to really buy into this vision that they want to not be a charity, that they'll all think about their collective well-being, not just, you know, individual well-being of, am I making more money than you are? Um, and so it's this sort of a mindset that they sign on to and a culture that's been created. And that's what makes Legit work. It's this shared vision plus this culture. And I love that story. It's a great story. And you couldn't get five partners in a law firm to agree, let alone 45,000. It's just unbelievable. Uh, naturally, every company needs a strategy to back the vision. But you had a great example where the strategy didn't necessarily lead to the results expected. And in some cases, the strategy was all wrong because it was trying to achieve the wrong result. Now, I'm talking about the micro 
loan program uh, where that gentleman even won the Nobel Prize. Uh, please talk about what we learned from that. Yeah. So microloans, you know, the idea behind microloans was that it was going to alleviate poverty. And Mohamed Yunus won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006 for really coming up with this concept. And it was so promising at the time, right? The idea was if we can just give every entrepreneur a microloan, let's say it's $20, that they can build their products and they can sell it and poverty will be eradicated. And it sounded so beautiful. The vision behind it was wonderful. But when you think about the strategy, it goes back to, you know, some of the questions that Brandon asked earlier, which was, well, they didn't have a clear strategy that had been validated. So the pain point that was assumed behind microloans is that every poor person is an entrepreneur who just needs a little bit of money to be able to invest in their business, right? But if you were to really validate that, I mean, come on, we can't say that every you know, millennial is an entrepreneur. We can't say that every, uh, every person of a particular generation or a demographic has this particular characteristic. So how can we just assume that about every person who lives below the poverty line that they would be an entrepreneur, right? So that, that assumption was flawed. Yes, this was a good solution for encouraging entrepreneurship, but not for eradicating poverty. Another problem was, uh, you know, the solution itself. The assumption was if these people were given loans that it would help them have a better life. Well, in reality, even that solution wasn't validated because what they found was just like every startup, you know, some entrepreneurs succeeded, some failed. So if you looked at the net average, there wasn't a transformative effect of microloans on that community. And so between the R and D, when it hadn't been validated, that was a problem, right? But what made microloans particularly bad was when the business model became misaligned with the goal and the vision, right? So what happened was Mohamed Yunus and his organization was thought, they were thoughtful in terms of the business model. But then many entrepreneurs came into the space and they said, oh, we can make money using microloans. And so their business model was all about making money. And so when that aspect um, of the strategy was misaligned with the rest, microloans just tanked as a market. People lost faith and trust in microloans. That was the whole thing that made the microloan system work, this desire to repay because it was doing good for the community. And so once that was lost, the whole microloans market caused a crash. Um, so that was the lesson, you know, unless you have a clear strategy that is a well thought out strategy that's derived from a vision, products often fail. Question from the audience. Can one apply product design to the other disciplines? You've mentioned political. Can one uh, say design their life as a product? Any, uh, any others that come to mind? I am so glad you asked this question. And I love this question because mm -hmm. at the end of the book, you know, I talk about even civil rights as a product. You know, we have to think about what is the change we want to bring about. And I talk about the example of Claudette Colvin, whom history has forgotten. But Claudette Colvin was 15 years old when she was arrested for defying bus segregation laws in Alabama. And I asked her, you know, at 15, how did you manage to stand up or, or rather refuse to give up your seat on the bus, right? You were not even an adult. And her answer was the vision she had that she wanted an America where 
everyone could share the same American dream. And her approach of not giving up the seat was aligned with that vision. It was how she put that vision into action. But beyond that, you know, she was one of the four plaintiffs uh, and her fiery testimony was what um, led to that uh, Supreme Court case and the outcome that bus segregation was um, ended. And that was because of being led by a very clear vision. So yes, you can apply design and this radical product thinking, no matter where you want to create change, political or you know, policies, we need to, instead of thinking about ideologies, think about what is the change we envision and very systematically think about such change and how we'll bring it about through vision, strategy, priorities, how we measure success in creating a culture. All right. So this is my last question for you. You wrote about the importance of ethics and yet many of the most successful people don't even give a thought about it. It's all about the profits and, and, and the power. How do you incentivize ethical responsibility? That's such a good question, right? I Ethical responsibility, we often think about that as just corporate responsibility. We think about, uh, you know, it's companies that are responsible, like Facebook does bad things. Well, it's corporate responsibility that should fix it, right? But I really want us to, in this group, think about, well, Forget corporate responsibility just for a moment because the corporation as an entity was created to, for, to limit liability. Let's just pull aside this curtain um, behind the Wizard of Oz and realize that behind the curtain, right, behind this curtain of corporate responsibility are the individuals, individuals like you and me who are creating change. It is up to us to decide, you know, are we creating the change that we want to bring about? Um, is, is this what we want to help build in the world? And we have to be truly honest about what is the change we are helping to bring about in the product and whether we want to be part of that. Um, and in terms of incentives, what I will say is that I think the pandemic has really shifted something in us. We're realizing that we want a greater purpose than just profits that, you know, we want to feel like we're creating or doing something meaningful. And that comes from a vision for change and feeling like we're contributing to something meaningful. Um, and I think each of us needs to think about that question. You know, are you contributing to the change that you want to bring about in the world? And that's what leads us to the real answer behind corporate ethics. Like, are we it's up to each of us to decide and vote with our labor on what's the change you want to bring about. I have to say the hour went too fast. I could have listened to you much longer. I think everybody else felt the same way. I hope everybody uh, gets your book and I'll make sure I send the link out so people can click and buy your book as well. We thank you for uh, coming and hopefully you're going to be writing more books and we'll stay in touch. Thank you so much. I love this conversation. And thank you for the thoughtful questions. Um, and, and thank you also for the audience for the wonderful questions. Enjoy your weekend, everybody. We'll look forward to seeing you next Friday. Have a great day and a good weekend. Be safe. Thank you all. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. 
Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.